Welcome back to Women Get Lit. And today's episode, Female Gossip, Chaucer and the Wife of Bath, a male academic's perspective. In today's episode, we will be discussing Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales, focusing on the Wife of Bath's prologue and tales separately. The medieval poem consists of a collection of stories narrated by a group of pilgrims during their journey to Canterbury. Chaucer's tales address issues surrounding gender, religion and identity in an acutely comedic way. I decided to include a text which initially seems a little out of context with the other texts that I have discussed or will in the future mainly because of my big passion for the art of medieval texts. I hope it encourages some of you to discover the timeless effects some of these texts can have. The wife of Bath, in her prologue, begins a bold and modern discussion into love, marriage and men, as she shocks her audience with her radical views. The wife of Bath was married five times and describes her gains from each marriage. She also documented the domestic abuse she endures from the hands of her fifth husband, Jacqueline. She believes herself to be a figure of authority and knowledge when it comes to the complicated subject of marriage. Her tale tells the story of a noble knight who, after being charged with the rape of a young girl, is sentenced and given one year to discover what women most desire as punishment he eventually turns to an ugly witch, who promises to aid him if he does what she asks. Their answer is, sovereignty over men. The witch commands the knight to marry her. When alone, she asks if he wishes to have an ugly yet faithful wife, or a beautiful and faithless one. He declares it's her choice, after which he is rewarded with a youthful, faithful wife, having learnt his lesson. The wife of Bath is one of the few women who is given a voice in the Canterbury Tales. Other tales we will discuss and mention are the Clerk's Tale and the Second Nun's Tale. How long have you been an academic at Queen Mary? So I began my academic career at Queen Mary. I did my PhD there back in 2010, and I began teaching in the second year of my PhD. Basically, I taught at Queen Mary for the next 10 years. I finished teaching there a month ago. I'm now teaching at the University of Surrey. So how did you end up teaching the field of medieval literature? What drew you to it? <laughs> That's an interesting question because I don't think I ever picked medieval studies as a field. So my MA, which I did at Edinburgh, was on Renaissance poetry, so the period just after the medieval. And I was specifically interested in poetry that was written in the time of Henry VIII in England, mm. which is generally seen as the first poetry after the medieval period and my PhD at Queen Mary was on the same field. But 
as I was studying this, I became more and more interested in the ways that we try and split things into neat periods and say, okay, this, what I'm studying is Renaissance, the age of Chaucer, the age of Shakespeare, and what came before was Chaucer. And I found that there were some problematic ways in which we do that in terms of how we think about history and how we think about our own culture today. So my work became more and more about how things from the medieval period carried over into later periods. And because of that, I started teaching some medieval stuff and I became more and more interested in teaching medieval, even though my research was slightly later. I just found it really fascinating to teach and the way students responded to it, I found really different to how they responded to things from later periods that they were more familiar with. What were the differences? How did they respond? So... I think students had less experience of medieval literature, but they had lots of preconceptions of what medieval stories might be, what medieval people might have thought about. The really big one is about, particularly because I teach medieval Britain, about how Christian that society was and how that might and what people were writing. And so particularly with someone like Chaucer, who can push against the grain and very satirical about religion, that's often very surprising to students and it causes them to then question things that they've assumed before. And that's always exciting as a teacher to see students in in any field, to see students questioning assumptions and starting to think, okay, well, maybe I need to rethink how I've been approaching things. I agree. I think especially with Chaucer, every text is very surprising. You discover something new and it's really fun. So are you a feminist? Do you feel like to be an academic in your field, you need to be a feminist? That's a very good question. So I would consider myself a feminist, absolutely. It's difficult for me to say whether you have to be a feminist Mm. to teach literature or teach medieval literature. But I think medieval literature in particular, if it doesn't necessarily make you a feminist, I think something it does is make you have to think very carefully about what we think about gender and Mm -hmm. how we approach gender norms. So actually, when I was an undergrad, one of the things that most interested me in medieval literature, which I studied quite a bit of at university, was the fact that in medieval stories, particularly romances, this medieval genre that covers knights and adventure stories and King Arthur, things like that. Men are fainting all the time. Whenever someone gets excited or they fall in love or they sad, they always faint. And I found that really funny at first because I was like, oh, that's really funny because that's what we expect women to do because we've been so trained by, especially Victorian novels like Austin. But then it caused me to have a think about, well, why is fainting gendered female? I don't think necessarily that women are fainting that much more than men I mean maybe in some circumstances but so then it forces you to question the way in which we gender things and the fact that that's not an immutable field it's not like gendered female and this is gendered male it's something that's socially constructed and partly by the books we read they teach us certain ways to perform our gender so I think it's very hard to read medieval literature without being aware of that and without questioning those things Mm. whether that makes you a feminist or not I don't know but certainly encourages you to engage with the same queries that feminists particularly feminist critics are very concerned with about how we construct gender and about how 
we think in terms of what they might call heteronormative terms and how that sometimes it's ingrained into us and it can be surprising when we see someone acting differently, particularly in something that's historical, something from the past where we assume everything's more conservative and just a stricter version of what we have. But that's not the case. And obviously Chaucer begins loads of different debates surrounding gender. Do you think Chaucer was a feminist? No, not at all. (laughs) Definitely not. And I think most feminist critics who write on Chaucer would definitely say that's not the case. There's a question of whether it's an appropriate term for medieval literature, because obviously Chaucer would have never heard the term feminist, and I don't think he would have understood the concepts. But I do think, and I don't know how you found this studying it, I do think Chaucer is really interested in some of the same things about questioning, well, what do we expect men to be like? What do we expect women to be like? And are there ways because again, Chaucer loves to push at people's expectations, are there ways we can maybe start to question this? So maybe in that very limited way, Chaucer is kind of a feminist. I don't know if you found that when you were reading him. I wouldn't say he was a feminist, but I always found it very interesting that he would critique men and he'd voice women and he'd voice all these experiences of women, for example, with the wife of Bath, which would seem initially quite modern and sound very like oh Chaucer's being a supporter of women but then at the same time he would critique women every time I'd read Chaucer or a different tale I'd change my mind and I wouldn't know (laughs) (laughs) which one and I think that's what Chaucer would want as well so how do you view Chaucer's women and how he presents women I think you've just hit upon the point there that it's very difficult to pin Chaucer down on anything. And so within the Wife of Bath's tale that we're going to be speaking about, there's huge debates just in that one story about what is he saying about women here? And responses range all the way from this is a feminist text that is pushing against all the expectations of women at the time, all the way down to this is just purely mocking women and anything positive he's saying is actually a joke. But then when you take his works as a whole, it becomes much more complicated. And something interesting, actually, is that Chaucer's very aware of this. He wrote a text called The Legend of Good Women, and it's a collection of different stories about famous historical women trying to show how heroic and noble they were and often how much men have mistreated them. And in the introduction to this, it begins as a popular medieval genre called a dream vision, where the narrator is Chaucer, and then he falls asleep and has a vision. And when he falls asleep, he meets Cupid, who attacks him and calls him essentially a sexist. He says, you've written these awful stories about women. What do you think your female readers would think about this? So he writes this book as an apology to women to say, no, I think you're great. (laughs) So (laughs) he's very aware of this. And actually, sometimes it's even within that story, it's difficult to know kind of exactly what he's saying or whether he's sometimes being ironic. I think maybe he's also having a dig at his readers for maybe misinterpreting what he said as Mm. perhaps more anti-woman than it might seem. Sage also doesn't write only about women, but the tales we studied were mostly concerned about gender. Why do you feel qualified 
to do this? Does it matter that you're a man? And did it matter that Chaucer was a man? Talking about these debates surrounding gender. That's interesting. I think in terms of whether I'm qualified, I think when we come to teaching, particularly more so than research, and as I've suggested, there's a difference between what we as academics teach and sometimes what we research. I think when it comes to teaching, my position is slightly less important than what's important for the students. So whether or not I am the ideal person to teach about female perspectives, and obviously there's some issues with that, but I also think it's important that people teach other perspectives. It's also worth pointing out that we're talking about the theoretical aspect, but there's really pragmatic things about teaching in a university which actually take these choices out of your hands a lot of the time. So you'll often be teaching courses that someone else has designed, for example, or you'll often be following a curriculum that might not be the text that you would choose to teach, that wouldn't be your first choices, but actually for curriculum reasons need to be in there. As the module convener, how did you decide which tales will be studied? What dictated your decision? Interestingly, for this course that that you studied Chaucer on, me and my colleagues made a very definite decision to avoid the texts that most get taught, which are Mm. the very bawdy, sleazy stories, which are all about sex or bodily functions. Often they revolve around farting or something like that. And things that you may have come across, like the Miller's Tale or the Merchant's Tale. And these are really common at A-level because I think they're a nice way in and they do that exact thing that I was talking about of surprising students. So we made a decision not to focus on them because I think it felt slightly too easy to just play for that reaction of, oh, I didn't expect a medieval person to write about sex so much. And that can become a distraction from seeing what's really there and also from seeing what things are different in the medieval period and understanding that historical gap between now and then. So there's this complicated balance between saying, oh, maybe it's not as different as you thought, and then saying, but actually there are some things that are alien and we can't just put modern sensibilities onto these stories. I think, because I studied The Merchant's Tale at A-level, and there was that element of shock and surprise that this is a medieval author, but I think at uni... I really enjoyed the range. I think what surprised me more wasn't Chaucer's presentation of gender or relationships, but religion. And I thought that was quite interesting and definitely a different perspective. Obviously, you have the first tale we did, The Man of Law with Constance and the Christians and the Muslims. It was interesting because I didn't expect... Well, obviously, I expected some aspect of religion, but it was a different approach yeah absolutely and I think that's something that can get lost in just going like hey look it's Chaucer and it's sexy and and funny I think also there's an element in which other periods that you're studying things about identity will come up time and time again and it's Mm. important that medieval studies is also thinking about those same issues yes definitely and also I really liked the exercises we did with translating medieval language into modern contemporary language it would change the meaning so much and it was the same analysis you do with more contemporary texts that's good I'm glad you said that because that was something I am always excited about because I think 
there's when you're translating Middle English because it's a form of English. It's just a very mm. old form. It's very easy to say, "Oh, I recognize that word. It sounds familiar, so I know what it means." And then find out there's all these different connotations or different cultural significations. But I think that's true for any text you're studying. That, in my experience, this word might signify or might imply this, but actually, to someone writing in 1960, they might have used it differently, or someone from a different culture, or someone from a different religious background. That word might have a very different meaning. So I think it's a nice way of showing what we're already doing when we study literature, of understanding what words what words do and how they change for different people. So now I'd like to move on to the wife of Bath, one of the tales we studied from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. So, what were your first impressions of the wife of Bath as a character and as a tale in prologue? So, I think if I remember rightly, I first read the Canterbury Tales when I was doing my A levels. So, like you, I studied one of the stories at A level. I studied the Franklin's Tale. And I thought it would help me get a good grade if I got a book out the library and read the rest of them in translation. And I think what struck me most was that two characters, the wife of Bath and the host, Harry Bailey, who doesn't tell any stories, but it's this character who pops up in between to kind of keep everyone in line. Both of these characters just seemed like people I knew or voices that were familiar to me. In my head, the host, Harry Bailey, is just a London cabbie, and I can't hear anything else when I hear him. The way he speaks, the way he engages with people, and the way he's directing their travel was immediate to me. And I think the wife of Bath, similarly, so easy to hear in her a modern voice. I think the wife of Bath, similarly, so easy to hear in her a modern voice. And lots of people have. That's why there's so many recent adaptations of The Wife of Bath. I think that more than the kind of content of the story was what struck me, was the character herself and mm. how familiar she felt. I probably didn't understand when I first read it what she was talking about very well. <laughs> so I, I think because The Wife of Bath's prologue, a very long debate about the nature of marriage and the place of women in society it doesn't sound lively, it doesn't sound exciting, except in her voice, because she's such an engaging character, and she's so in your face. I think when you first read the prologue, it's quite shocking, the fact that it felt so modern, and the voice, and just her small kind of snippets. The Wife of Boss prologue and tale are very different, but what are the key differences for you, and how do you try to separate the prologue and the tale when you teach them? So, personally, I don't know that I do. I think whenever I've taught The Wife of Bath's tale and prologue both together, I think that's fairly common because they clearly influence each other and reading one without the other really changes the experience. But actually, that would be a really interesting experiment to read just the tale and not give the prologue where we learn so much about the person who's telling it. I do think 
there is a sense in which because she's such a big personality that can then overtake the story mm-hmm. and being that we're always looking for signs of her when we're reading the stories she tells so I, in that sense yes I think you're right there is a separation that needs to happen yeah. and she never says it's a story about me or my feelings she just says here's a story I want to tell I think there's been a lot of very psychological readings which try and really pin down like oh why would she say this and why would she do that uh, and yeah. sometimes they lose sight of what's going on whilst the prologue emphasizes the importance of giving women a voice and freedom of choice the tale I think personally pushes the opposite morals what do you think then was Chaucer's intention with the wife of Bath so my personal approach to literature is to always avoid talking about I think the things that you're possibly more (laughs) interested in which is intention and morality and how we can pin it down Intention is a really difficult thing to talk about, I think, because you can never know a person by what they write. And even if you can, that person might change by the time they write something else. Even the wife of Bath, we know that he originally wrote a different story for her, which is now the shipman's tale. And we're quite sure that that was originally intended to be the wife of Bath's tale. And at some point, he changed his mind about what the wife of Bath was going to say or how she was going to present herself and gave her a different story. Even within his own kind of writing process, clearly his ideas and intentions were were in flux. I guess, are you interested in maybe his intentions towards the representation of women? Is that is that the kind of main thing you were thinking about? Mainly the wife of Bath, because I do think the other women we studied are very different. For example, Constance is, for me personally, so, so different. And the wife of mm-hmm. Bath just stood out with her quite bold speech and the fact that she kind of owns the room during the tale mm-hmm. and she's very confident with what she's saying. She silences the men. But then the tale seemed so contradictory to me and I couldn't wrap my head around that I was like oh but such a (laughs) old woman has this quite misogynistic tale and then I tried to kind of pinpoint it and say oh well there is that small scene in the prologue when she speaks about her fifth husband and the domestic abuse she experiences Mm. then I tried to pinpoint this as internalized misogyny but then it felt like I was apologizing her and also Chaucer with this I think that's something that most readers have struggled with particularly because the ending involves essentially this rapist getting not just away with it but getting rewarded in a very kind of gendered way of getting this beautiful wife it's important to remember that the wife of Bath's tale is essentially a fairy tale it's one of these medieval romances these kind of fiction stories which have magic and knights and usually a fairy tale happy ending so in comparing it to the wife of bath's tale we're comparing to also trying to represent a kind of person who is at least semi-realistic with a fairy tale story that they're telling and the ending might reflect that as well that this is not what she thinks is happening in the real world But maybe there is 
and it could indeed be, I think you're right, a sense of internalized misogyny, that this is her ideal ending to that kind of story that maybe wouldn't work in the real world and maybe shouldn't work in the real world. But as someone who has suffered different forms of abuse and is still married to the husband that abused her, she is perhaps thinking about, well, or at least imagine it's a possibility, even if realistically this isn't what we can expect in the real world. The text ironically emphasises women telling their own story. However, the Canterbury Tales is written by a man with male pilgrims who then tell their story. And many men are involved in creating or giving the female voice. How do you interpret this? Does it affect the way you read or teach Chaucer? Oh, absolutely. I think the real irony of The Wife of Bath's prologue is that as I read it, it's a sincere attempt to think about the problem of that there are limited female perspectives in a very male-dominated literature, but it's written by a man. If we suddenly had this same text and knew it was written by a woman, I think it would completely transform how we read it because it would be a very sincere call for more people to respect women's voices. So what is it like to teach the Canterbury Tales, I guess the Wife of Bath more specifically as well, with a predominantly female classroom? Does it change anything? Or I would like to think I would teach the same in any regard and that it shouldn't matter, but it, in many ways it does. And I think with The Wife of Bath's Tale in particular... It does. And this is something I don't think I paid attention to in, when I first started teaching, when I was still learning how to teach. But it occurred to me one day when I was teaching a different text that involves sexual assault, that it's crazy for me to be speaking here in front of a class that was, I think, all but one were female. The chances are <clears throat> that someone or more than one person in that class has experienced sexual assault. And that's obviously a higher probability when teaching women. Even if they haven't, they've probably experienced forms of misogyny, forms of harassment that I have no experience of. I was wondering if your experience as a student, if that kind of dynamic affects how you experience things as a student, if you're dealing with something that speaks more to your experience than the teachers. I think I've had a very positive experience a university, for example, with my Gothic module, there was a lot of mention of violence and misogyny towards women, but I think it was handled very well. I went to an all-girls school, so I was very used to being surrounded by women all the time within the classroom, but the dynamic was so different at uni. There was more pressure to speak about misogyny. I found it interesting you said like less pressure to talk about those things. I think it's important to be aware of them and to be able to address them, but also not feel like you're being defined in your position as a student. And this is what I think I would want to avoid is directing things at female students as if their interests are only about their gender. So now I'd like to move on to like the Canterbury Tales more broadly. So some of the tales presented women in very derogatory terms, such as the case with Griselda in The Clerk's Tale. 
does not only write about women and I was very moved by the religious language and motif throughout the Canterbury Tales and mm. one of the tales that really stood out to me was the second nun's tale and the female lead there because I think for me personally the misogyny wasn't really the focus it was about religion and the marriage but how do you balance your teaching between acknowledging the misogyny in some of the tales but also seeing Chaucer's work as a whole. Just before I get onto that, I'm really glad that you like the second nun's tale because it's one of my favourites and it's mm. one that often gets overlooked because it's a very common form of religious story in the Middle Ages. It's a saint's life. And so it follows a very common pattern and I think it can look from the outside. Personally, I think that whilst the wife of Bath is the more exciting narrator and character and the one that maybe has a more immediate appeal. The second nun's slightly more mature way to kind of deal with these issues that it's not so in your face. It's not saying like, this is about, you know, strong female voices. It just shows a strong female character who's facing oppression, not for her gender, but for her religion, Mm. who has, I think, one of the strongest voices in the Canterbury Tales and the way she stands up to this knowing that she's going to die. But another thing he's really interested in is showing all different kinds of stories that those people might tell. So for a story like The Second Nun's Tale, it's a saint's life, a hagiography. I wonder, were you thinking of Griselda, that kind of poor mistreated character? So one way in which I like to approach that, and when I lecture on it, is thinking less about the treatment of Griselda, whose husband is awful to her, just constantly tortures her mentally. But to think about the way Chaucer's audience would approach this kind of generically, which is this is a copy of another text that exists in several forms. And so for Chaucer's audience, the interest might not just be in what the character's doing, but how is this exact version of the story playing with earlier versions of the story mm-hmm. it's almost like he's been given this story and he doesn't know what to do with it so he chooses to keep it but to present it in such a way that allows us to undermine what's going on why do you think we still read Chaucer what makes his work so enjoyable even if we are aware of its problems like in terms of its morals sometimes so i think a couple of things one is that often you know critics whether that's literary critics or you know people talking about popular culture Mm. on even on youtube or on tv or on social media often you know, focus on things like morality. But I think people's reading experience is often quite different. There's been several recent adaptations of The Wife of Bath. And I think almost all of them have in common the fact that they say, this character spoke to me. So Zadie Smith wrote a recent play, The Wife of Bath, The Wife of Wilsdon. And in the introduction to the text of that play, she says, I knew immediately she was a North London girl. They knew that voice and they knew that person. And mm. I think Chaucer's more familiar, as familiar to us now as he was then, because particularly a character like the Wife of Bath just seems so 
exaggerated, but an exaggerated version of some people that still exist today. Do you think if we took out the comedy part of the Canterbury Tales, we would view Chaucer and his work differently? That's a very good question. Absolutely, we definitely view it differently if it didn't have the comedy. It Lots of what he writes, not all of it, but lots of it doesn't work without at least a kind of hint of comedy mm. because it's satirical. And in order to kind of mock people, I think you need that comedy. Otherwise, it just feels aggressive. Mm. I don't think it would be enjoyable if it was just being like, look at these people, aren't they awful? So my last question for you is, what do you think is the most important thing you'd like to highlight about Chaucer's work? We shouldn't be thinking about the past as something entirely alien or entirely in our own terms. If we try and impose modern morality on someone like the wife of Bath, it kind of writes over what Chaucer's text was doing and what his society believed, and we lose all sense of why we're doing it. If we just say, oh, well, that's sexist, and we're not sexist now, which it leads us to some problematic conclusions about our own culture. So we don't want to treat the past just on our own morals, but we also need to be able to see it as something that does have some affinity with us and that we can see some human connection that, okay, this person was living in the year 1380, 1390, but they have the same emotions and they have the same relationships and they may be structured differently by society, but there's some common thread of humanity that comes through. Great. Thank you so much for this insightful conversation. I thought it was really great. Oh, well, thank you. It's really fun to be here. This was probably one of the conversations that left me feeling most liberated. And I wanted to highlight one moment that moved me. Even though I am a young woman who is interested in typically feminist issues, voice, readership, men, ideas, at some point I felt lost in the idea that it was becoming my identity and something that people associated me with. The suggestion that I could only write or talk about men, how they oppress me, how I need to fight back against them, how I need to write brutal things about them and create a podcast that showcases my injustice. But I think, maybe not just this episode, but this whole journey has made me realise that, yes, I can write about men, women, be interested and passionate about all of that (laughs) and still acknowledge that I love medieval literature in a very geeky way. I'm passionate about ancient English, the romance genre, the fairy tale element, the timeless feeling with which I first fell in love with when I started reading. And I think it's very easy for a young person to become overwhelmed and stirred and all sort of different directions with what others try to impose on you if it's media society friends family and i found it so hard to separate and accept that i can be a multifaceted person and self and i can be interested in 
more stuff and just because I'm passionate about something it doesn't have to become my identity and I can write out of boredom and I don't have to politicize everything and I think reading the Canterbury Tales I'm presented with a woman in the second nun's tale who is both strong, who is independent, who has equality in her marriage, who is still the idea of purity and a strong-willed identity, and she's not lost or tamed or kind of distorted or has internalized misogyny, as was discussed about the wife of Bath. And I think... There's something quite timeless and powerful and out of the heavily political world that we're living in now that just allows the text to be and allows for comedy. And I think there's something quite pure and lighthearted, especially in what Joel said, that when you're reading the Canterbury Tales, you don't always have to think about the morals behind it as I was taught and thought is so very necessary. So I guess the last thing I want to say in this episode is it's okay to just enjoy a text because it's meant to be enjoyed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Women Get Lit. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Professor Susan Ruddy, whose years of academic interests and passion for reading have led her towards the most important questions surrounding gender equality and queer feminist theory.